Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast. My name is Monty Ward and my guest today is Matteo Gravna from the Gravna Winery in the Friuli region in Italy. Welcome. Hi. Now, you come from a very, very famous winery. How did you get involved with the family business? I was born there, which is quite easy to understand. But I just started working with my father in the winery three years ago. And your father's name is? Joško. His official name is, is Francesco. At home, we speak Slovene. You maybe know we are right on the border and there are a lot of people speaking Slovene. But when my father was born in '52. It was forbidden to give any foreign names uh, in Italy. So his official name is Francesco, but everyone knows him as Joško. So it's funny because often people ask me, seeing the label, who is actually Francesco? Do your fa- father has a brother? No, it's just he, he and himself. So what was your real, in, in Italian, what would your name be then? Uh, Joško, it comes from Josef and this. Uh, in Itali- Italian would be Beppe. Beppe, yeah, okay. And, and Mattea? What's Mattea your, in, is the feminine of um, Matthew. When I was born, finally it was possible to, to choose the name. So you're called Matthew then? No, in Italian this, there is Mattea, Ma- oh, uh, Mattea which is okay. quite close, but it's not so common. Do you know my real name is Matthew as well? Yes. Everyone calls me Monty. Why? Well, that's another long story, because of my sense of humour, Monty Python. But we, okay. we'll, we'll, we, we've got a whole new show coming up on about that. Okay, so you, you're working for the family winery. So your winery is well known for a particular style of wine called orange wine. How did that come about? What's for me strange to understand is why, why so many people believe that before 2000, we were involved in something else. So often people don't remember or, or don't know. We started producing wines in 1901. Actually, the family was before working. We were just farmers. In 1901, my grand-grandfather bought the house we we live in. Which was in Slovenia at the time. At the time was Austro-Hungarian Imperium. Austro-Hungarian Empire. Yes. So the, the name Gravner comes from German. It seems that the family come from South Bavaria between 1650 and 1700. But everyone speaks Slovene, so we are a good mix of uh, European people. The, my grandfather bought this house because his family, so the grand-grand-grandfather family, become a little bit bigger. And one of the brothers, my grandfather, bought this house and started his own farm. At the time, he used to produce some uh, fruits, basically cherries and uh, apricots and uh, grapes for wine. We had some coals, some pigs, just, just normal farmers. After the Second War, in our area, the First and the Second War were very, very difficult. The production moved quite quickly in more grapes, despite cherries and apricots. And with the 70s, we had no animals anymore. At the time, the wines were produced in um, oak barrels, sold, not bottled. We had uh, an osteria. Some of the wines were sold there. So you were selling wine with the food directly from the from the vat, from the from the wooden yes. barrel, yeah? Economy and the life completely changed in the 60s. My aunts, my father had four aunts, were actually the first generation of women in countryside going to the university which is very positive. 
that changed completely the, the work in a, in a farm. With the late 60s, people they were used to come to the winery to taste the wine and to choose, choose wines, stopped tasting our wines because they were supposed to be too rich in color, too goldish. They were not fermented on the skins, but they were not exactly paper white. The market started asking paper white wines. For my grandfather, it was something difficult to understand. So he said, what, what happened to people that in a few weeks, a few months, were not anymore able to taste the wines? Just seeing the color, they started saying, no, I don't like them. People, they were buying our wines for years. My father just finished the winemaking school. He went to his father and said, you are old, you don't understand the market. So he took away all the big barrels and he started producing in a modern way. So there was a complete revolution between your, your grandfather, when your father took over from his father, your grandfather, the wine style completely changed at the Gravener Winery. Yes, because the market was asking for this, maybe my father was ready to change. What he, he learned at school, that it was possible to produce high quantity with high quality. My grandfather always said that either quality or quantity, having them together was impossible. But my father was 20, a lot of energy, a lot of attitude. He started producing. In 73, the first bottling. So every year, what my father tried to do was to use all the technology available. And you know, technology is, once you start using, is is still old, so you always have to upgrade what you are doing. The first important change came in 82. My father, for the first time, made uh, the green harvesting. Of course, he didn't invent it, but he was the first one doing it in, in our village in Oslavia. Oslavia is a small village. There are about 500 people living there, but there are seven wineries. For elderly people, it was very difficult to accept the green harvesting because these people used to start during the two wars. and. Doing the green harvesting means you select the grapes and you don't accept all the, the grapes the nature is giving you. So for people they used to starve, not accepting what the nature is giving you was something very difficult to understand. And some elderly people were crying seeing what my father was doing. But the quality changed so quickly that the most people understood it and most of them are now doing like uh, like this. In the 80s, my father traveled a lot and he introduced the small barrels, you know, in Italy we call them barriques, but in a different way. He started fermenting the wines in small barrels, preserving them in small barrels for the first year and the second year in stainless steel tanks. So, so he moved the bottling up to two years after the harvesting. Was that also a big shock for local people that, you know, he does the green harvest, okay, we get used to that. Then he brings these French barrels in. Was that a real shock? I think this wasn't that shocking. They already knew he was a bit of a wild guy, yeah? Maybe they get used about <laughs> what he was made, but it was not so difficult to... It was much more difficult, the, the green harvesting. In 87, my father made his first trip to Napa Valley. In the 80s, California, Napa Valley was supposed to be a kind of wonderland for wines. And my father wanted to see what was happening there. For him, it was a shock. Like always, U.S. are the best and the worst part of everything. And when he was back and mom asked him, what did you learn? He said, what we don't have to do. Because he tasted the first wine for him. This was the first wine, was a Sauvignon with some chemical added aromas. For him, it was difficult to understand. Why, why should you add aromas to wine? It's a drink, it's not anymore wine. But the trip was in June, a lot of works. So once he was back, he wasn't thinking anymore about uh, this Sauvignon until a few months later, he tasted the first Sauvignon produced in Friuli in which one he recognized the same aroma. 
And this was for him the, the end because he decided, he understood that if this was the only possible future for wine, he didn't want it to be part of this kind of future. So basically what he felt was if, if, if wine grows on different continents, one in America and one in Italy, they both make a Sauvignon Blanc that tastes exactly the same. That was what depressed him. Not only the, to a farmer's market and you buy a, an apple which has a, a strawberry taste. What's the point? So the good thing he brought from Napa Valley was the idea about organic farming. We live in such a small village that pollution was never, hasn't been and in there a problem. But we started thinking about this and slowly we moved to a organic production. There was still another thing which was for my father difficult to understand. We moved to the organic production because we always eat a lot of grapes and we understood that if we were spraying them and eating them, we were just poisoning ourselves. It's very simple, but it's very stupid to do. Eating so many grapes, we perfectly know the taste of every single variety. But Sauvignon wine should taste like Sauvignon grapes, Chardonnay from Chardonnay, Merlot from Merlot. Ribolla, which is the grape which is grown in our area since more than 1,000 years, has never had the Ribolla grape taste. And this was, for my father, difficult to understand, because why did Ribolla never have the taste of Ribolla grape? Ribola has a little bit bigger berries and has a very thick skin. So if you press it too gently, you extract a very neutral wine with almost no taste, no character. If you press it too hard, you extract a bitter taste, which is again not the Ribola taste. So every year during the harvesting, the deal was how to manage perfectly the pressing of Ribola grapes. In the early 90s, my father started doing the first taste about Ribola fermented on the skins, but you know, harvest is the craziest time in every winery, so he never had the opportunity to follow this work as he deserved. Until 96. In 96, we had a very strong hailstorm. Between June 90 and 20, we, we lose the 95% of our grapes. At the time, we were working on 18 hectares, and the average production was between 40 45,000 bottles. We never released the Vintage 96. We don't buy grapes, we don't buy wines. With the grapes you have been able to harvest, my father made the taste about the Ribolla. So he fermented Ribolla on the skins and without skins. On the skins with selected yeast, on the skins with no added yeast, and the same without skins. So there were four Ribolla wines fermenting at the same time. And when in spring 97 my father tasted the four Ribollas and he tasted the Ribolla fermented on the skins with no added yeast, he finally found the taste of the Ribolla grape. And since Ribolla, which was the most difficult grape to work with, reacted so well to the skin fermentation, he believed that every wine would benefit from this kind of fermentation. In 97, all our white grapes have been fermented on the skins. At the time, skin fermentation was four days. Today, four days is not supposed to be skin fermentation, but uh, in 97 was completely crazy. In 2000, it was for 12 days. In 97, my father made the first fermentation in a small amphora, very technically, uh, coming from Georgia, from the Russian Georgia. When he has seen how well the fermentation, how naturally the fermentation was working in such a small clay vessel buried in the soil, he believed that every grape would love to be fermented in this way. He went to Georgia only in 2000, at the time it was not so easy to reach Georgia, and he tried to find some 
people still able to produce amphoras. In 2000, in May 2000, he went to Georgia, he found some people, he bought some amphoras. We had to organize everything by ourselves because no one was producing amphoras anymore, no one was exporting or shipping amphoras. He was back dreaming about having the vintage 2000 fermented in amphoras. Sadly, the first truck with 11 amphoras arrived in November, which was too late, but this is the good part because the horses that from 11 amphoras, nine were completely broken. He went again, he bought more amphoras. It took us five years to collect all the amphoras we needed, but the vintage 2001 was partially fermented in amphoras. The big difference between fermenting grapes uh, in amphoras or wood is that the amphoras are in the ground, so the soil is controlling the temperature, there is no human intervention need, and in 2000 the skin fermentation was over three months. Nowadays the wine is preserved on the skins between five and six months. This is the big difference between wood and an amphora. We believe that the skin is the matter of wine, and then longer wine can be preserved with the mom skin, the better for, for the wine. What your father's done and what your family have done has become much copied in uh, the wine world. How difficult is it for you being almost the sort of flagship winery of this revival in amphora wine, orange wine, natural wine? Is that is that a big pressure on your shoulders as a family or are you just happy that other people are following? No, uh, we are very happy that other people follow. I think they don't follow us, they follow an idea. I am very happy when we find someone using this idea and making this idea different in his own way. I don't like people copying, but it's not because how to say we have the royalty is not about this. It's about if you copy, you don't have your own idea. Obviously, when you see other people, you see other things, you can be inspired by them. But then you should use this idea and find your own way to express this. So when I find people young or elderly, it's really not important. They they have an idea and they find a good way to express uh, express this idea i think this is always positive we have seen so many people in all the all over the world from japan in brazil in us there are more and more producers doing or in this way often people ask me what's for me a good wine it's not necessary wine which is fermented on the skins or which is fermented in alfora which is aged for a long period I think it's a wine which really expressed the idea and the terroir of where it has been born. This is, I think, the most important. Otherwise, we have wines from California, from Friuli, from South Africa, from New Zealand. They have almost the same taste. And what's the point then in choosing one region or another one? Yeah, and it's interesting, your family history, your father went to America, he had an idea, then he went to Georgia, had an idea, then he went back to Italy, Slovenia, whatever you want to call it. And then that idea has gone kind of global, if you like. So it's amazing how this kind of fert- cross-fertilization of, uh, of of winemaking practices can really take effect quite quickly. Because it's been a very, a very sudden sort of change, hasn't it, this um, fashion for orange and yellow natural wines? It has been. In few years, many producers I think the wine world was ready for this. So there were so many small producers, they felt oppressed by the big industry. Often people believe that we are against progress. It's not true, but there is a good progress, a faster computer, a faster plane, a better surgery, and there is a progress which is not accepted by our body. All the things you introduce in yourself should be then simpler they can be. 
because our body, despite the millennia we are here, hasn't had the time to digest microchips. So we believe that in things we eat, in things we drink, we should really be careful about what we are choosing. More and more small producers, not only wine producers, started in the mid-90s, early 2000, to think about this. So I think my father was one of the first, was not. I think it's always hateful to say was the first. There were so many other people working on this that it's really not important to know who was exactly the first. There were so many people working on this that maybe they just needed a kind of leader which was still recognized as a good wine producer, which completely changed the way he used to produce wines in order to be a little bit less impactive to the environment. Okay, I'm going to ask you one question about the vineyard. Um, I could ask you a million questions, but I'll ask you just one. Normally in wine growing, wine growers really don't like having botrytis or fungal disease organisms. How does your dad manage that? What has he done to actually be to encourage fungal disease organisms? My grandfather, when we were harvesting in the 70s, in the 80s, Yoshko pretend everyone to take out every single berry which was not perfect. My grandfather used to say to my father, we are wasting the best part of our harvesting. In 98, for the first time, my father restarted using the botrytis grapes and he understood his father was right. If possible, we really like to have botrytis grapes. The problem is that you can't order them because you need special or perfect weather condition. If possible, we preserve them. We don't use any chemicals, any spray to avoid it, so to preserve the, the grapes. The problem is that if it rains too much, you risk to have a lot of rotten berries. We accept the risk. We believe it's much more important to have high quality grapes despite having a little bit more. Did he not create like a wetland area where the, he said this is the home for the fungal organisms, not, not, not like a pond and not um, a piccolo lago or an area? Yes, but this is, uh, we, in our vineyard, we introduced many years ago ponds, but not in order to have more botrytis because we understood we had less and less birds. It can seem stupid, but in the 90s we understood that we were wasting our soil. So we reduced the number of uh, vines. Uh, we widened the terraces in order to have more space for other trees and we studied which kind of birds used to live in our area. We introduced artificial nests because, you know, we cleaned so much the, the environment, the, the fields, that birds had no more possibility to build their own nest. And if they don't have nests, they don't have babies. It's that easy. So we introduced artificial nests and we have more and more birds. Last year, we had all around the house and the, and the cellar 34 natural nests. This year, they were 52. So every year, it's a, a big increase. Often producers are scared about birds because they say they eat grapes. It's not exactly true. Maybe partially even because Ribola has a very thick skin, so it's not very easy to eat for birds. But birds eat grapes when they are thirsty, not because they are hungry. So we introduce ponds in our, our vineyard and water is the origin of life. So we have mosquitoes, we have more and more insects. Birds, they come to the pond to eat mosquitoes. They preserve the vineyards clean. So it's, it's just a a good cycle in order to 
reduce the impact we have to the environment. We, of course, we produce grapes, so we need to grow vineyards, but we believe that a happy vine can give you better grapes. Perfect. Matej Gravna, thank you very much for coming in, talking about your happy vines, uh, happy birds, happy insects, happy ponds. Uh, it's a fantastic family story. You really are pioneers in the world of wine. You're globally acknowledged, I think, for the unique contribution you've made to wine and long may that continue thank you we hope to have even happy customer at this point <laughs> oh, you've got a very happy podcast host i can tell you <laughs> thank that. you a brilliant interviewee really nice to talk to you and listen to you thank you even for your passes guys <laughs> follow italian wine podcast on facebook and instagram 